Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we are back in the podcast studio. And again, we're coming to you from Zoom here. I've got another special guest coming to us all the way from, I like to say the left coast because the right coast is the east coast, the left coast is the west coast. I guess if you look at the map, uh, that's how I kind of try to use it. But uh, coming all the way from the LA area, Dr. Vasu Sankara, who is the president of MedSafe Track and also a practicing physician out in the Los Angeles area. Thank you for joining us on the Project Purple podcast, Dr. Sankara. How are you today? Doing well. Thanks so much, Dina, for the invitation. So can I call you Vasu? Is it okay to call you? How, how do we want to call you here today? Dr. Sankara yes, or Vasu? Vasu is, Vasu is fine. Definitely. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, I, I, I just am always careful with, with names because uh, uh, my name, those most of you that know me is Dino Varelli, but I have a formal name, but I prefer Dino. That's <laughs> my name. So I know names are important. So I just want to make sure before we start, you know, getting into our podcast here. Uh, so for our audience listening at home, Vasu, what we always do for our audience is we always give the guests the first kind of five, 10, 20 minutes, however long it may take, I should say, to give your background and what brings you here today. Um, on the Project Purple podcast. And I know you you guys are working, the company you're with is, is working on some really novel treatment uh, within the pancreatic cancer space. And, and we're always excited to share kind of these things that are happening behind the scenes that not a lot of people are aware of just yet. Um, but let's get into your background, how you got here today. Um, and with that, the mic is yours. Great. Well, thank you again, Dino, and very uh, excited to be on the podcast and discuss the interesting work that we've been doing uh, about myself. I am originally from Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, moved to Southern California uh, later uh, in my teenage years. I went to college at UC Berkeley and uh, did my bachelor's in international development, as well as pre-med uh, biochemistry. While at Berkeley, I was always very interested in health disparities and underserved populations. And that was a basis for me uh, doing different field work in South India, in Mexico as well. But what really made an impression on me is I had the opportunity to work with uh, Daniel McFadden. He was an economist at UC Berkeley. He's currently emeritus and uh, a co-recipient of the 2000 Nobel Prize in economics. And I spent three years working with Dr. McFadden and really was an incredible experience applying some of the techniques he developed in econometrics to issues of health disparities. And that really inspired me to uh, not only pursue medicine, but also look into health data, statistics, econometrics, and how to bring together interdisciplinary thought processes in my career. And after uh, completing my time at Cal, I went to the University of Wisconsin at Madison, where I completed my medical degree, and again, was very interested in health disparities, underserved populations. During that time, uh, helped organize a trip post-Katrina um, to the Ninth Ward in New Orleans uh, that was supported by the Arnold Peak Gold Katrina Fund, and really an opportunity to um, try to bring students together 
across the medical school and the nursing school uh, to be there in New Orleans to do what we could. Um, and really, more than anything, it uh, accentuated and emphasized the importance of health infrastructures, health needs, and coming together as communities. After medical school, I did a PhD at UCLA, where I was very interested, again, in uh, health statistics, health innovation, and that followed with uh, my postdoctoral training uh, at the Harvard Department of Economics, where I worked with uh, Nobel Laureate Marcus Sen. And similarly with Dr. Sen, it really inspired me this idea of how can you try to reach out and elevate towards big ideas and try to make progress, however incremental it might be. Uh, after my time at Harvard, I did my residency in Pennsylvania and then came back to Southern California. And currently, I'm a practicing physician and then also president CEO of MedSafeTrack. And as it relates to pancreatic cancer, this is something that is very close uh, to my heart. My grandfather, unfortunately, passed away from pancreatic cancer. And it is, as we all know, one of the most insidious cancers. And the opportunity to try to make a difference in this field is something uh, that was important to me. And with that, it led me through my research in pancreatic uh, studies to the work of Fred Banting. And Fred Banting was a University of Toronto physician who ultimately was the key figure in isolating insulin in the 1920s. And that came about from him reading a scientific paper that showed that if you close the duct of the pancreas, it actually causes the pancreas for the exocrine pancreas, which is about 80% of the pancreas, causes that to atrophy or degenerate, leaving only the endocrine cells, uh, which up to that point were never fully isolated because they would always be digested by the digestive enzymes coming from the exocrine cells. So this brilliant idea led to him to go to University of Toronto, do the first studies in dog with pancreatic duct ligation to finally isolate insulin. And so uh, arguably one of the most important uh, clinical discoveries of the 20th century. And that idea of pancreatic duct ligation was really inspired by the work of Banting. And my question was, well, if this can physiologically degenerate 80% of the exocrine pancreas, which is where most pancreatic cancer tumors arise, could this be used as a therapeutic treatment for pancreatic cancer itself? And so I was very fascinated by the idea. And as I reviewed the medical literature, I also came across the use of duct ligation in other settings related to the pancreas. So in the late 1960s, early 1970s, uh, there was a surgeon out of Burlingame, California, uh, Dr. Matting, who actually did pancreatic duct ligation surgically in humans and showed that in two forms of pancreatitis, acute relapsing pancreatitis and chronic pancreatitis, it improved health outcomes, reduced abdominal pain, uh, increased weight gain as well. And so a plethora of uh, different positive outcomes associated with this. And so this was the basis for me to assess let's see maybe if we could test this in pancreatic cancer. And so with that, 
uh, I've been working with Stephen Pandall. Uh, he is a faculty at Cedar sinai and UCLA and Director of Basic and Tra uh, Translational Pancreatic Research at Cedar sinai along with Maud Ederkow, who is also a faculty at Cedar sinai And as well with my father, Prasad Sunkara, we have been looking in preclinical models of pancreatic cancer. Could duct ligation be used as a novel treatment for pancreatic cancer? Uh, and with that, we've done preliminary studies at Cedar sinai which has shown uh, in a small model of uh, pancreatic cancer mice that there was a statistically significant difference in the tumor size post-duct ligation. And what is next is we have collaborations with the University of Nebraska uh, in the lab of Dr. Mark Carlson, a professor of surgery, where we will be applying for an R21 innovation grant with uh, the NIH to do surgical duct ligation in pigs to assess safety and tolerability. And then as well, we are working with uh, the University of Illinois, which has been a real leader in pig models of cancer. And they have a pancreatic cancer model, the pig called the Oncopig. And with that team there, we are looking to uh, seek funding and apply for catheter-based studies of uh, pancreatic cancer in pigs. With our ultimate objective being uh, development of a catheter-based treatment for pancreatic cancer doing duct ligation. And so that is the basis for uh, the work that we've been doing. So I've been taking notes here, Vasu. So I, I'm going to, first of all, sorry to hear about your grandfather, but just hearing, you know, you've been speaking for about 10 minutes, just hearing about this just gets me excited, right? Um, and so to see someone, you know, have a loss to this disease and then do something super positive to help potentially, you know, the whole population is just so inspiring. So thank you uh, for doing this and, and for the work you've invested, because I know this doesn't happen overnight. Thank you very much. I want to talk about this whole concept of duct, duct ligation. So if we just peel back the layers, not peel back the layers, but just dial this down a bit. In theory, then what you're talking about is basically turning off, you said about 85% or 70% of the pancreas and isolating the insulin part by closing the duct to isolate this, which in fact, in this case, in, in a mice model, would in essence pretty much starve, is it okay? I'm kind of using my own terms here, but again, I've been taking notes, kind of starve the tumor out. So basically isolate the tumor and basically by starving it, I guess in theory, you could uh, either, um, you know, kill the tumor with, with treatment or possibly even then extract the tumor if extraction is a possibility. Yeah, and I think it's it's a very um, compelling site. So the pancreatic duct itself is the primary channel by which all these digestive enzymes that help break down the food that we consume are being secreted. And with the there's a main duct that feeds into the intestine and there are smaller ductules that go into the individual small uh, exocrine glands that are generating these enzymes. 
And so the hypothesis we have is that by blocking this main duct, that a couple different things might be happening. One is you are forcing those digestive enzymes to backtrack back into the exocrine tissue, causing an auto-digestion. So essentially, these enzymes that are supposed to be breaking down and destroying bonds in the food that we eat is actually going back into the uh, exocrine glands themselves to destroy them. Two, that there would be an increase in the pressure of the duct, causing a pressure effect and affecting the viability of the exocrine tissue. And then another area is what we'd say potentially the tumor microenvironment. So as these enzymes build up because of the backlog pressure from the duct ligation, as the pressure builds up, there's cellular intracellular signaling that causes uh, different types of uh, apoptotic markers, different types of immune response that makes the tumor uh, more responsive to cell death. So a host of different factors where the duct is a primary uh, mediator of what's happening in the tumor death itself. And you just said one buzzword that I know that the whole space has kind of, I mean, I say buzzword. I know those that have been in the space have have talked about this for quite some time. I know we funded some research uh, about six years ago about the tumor micro environment, but I think over the last two years, that has been, um, I think, more and more in the mainstream media um, about the tumor microenvironment and, and you know, the stuff that we've been learning. I mean, I've always said this disease as itself is we are, we are so far um, advanced in what we know about this disease, but we're also so far away from understanding it, right? And so a, as we learn more, I think it gets more and more complex. And that's one of the things with the tumor microenvironment, you know, that uh, as we learn more about the disease, it just seems to get more and more complex. And I think the tumor microenvironment is one of those pieces to this large puzzle of pancreatic cancer. Yes, I completely agree. And I think that it's such an important area for us to further assess. And there has been such progress that's being made. And our hope in the work that we're doing is that the duct can be a basis to further understand and dissect that phenomenon, where, for example, it's been shown in studies that one week following duct ligation, so if, for example, within one week of doing a full duct closure uh, of the main duct, the pancreas is almost fully fibrosed. Hmm. So we have inflammatory cells, we have fibrosis, the viable tissue has almost largely degenerated within just a week. And that's been shown in animal models. And so it's a very powerful effect that's happening uh, with duct ligation. And where our enthusiasm for this line of potential minimally invasive therapy definitely uh, is standing out. So to go back to the process then, I know this is all happening in mice right now, correct? In the mice models? Correct. Okay. So the duct ligation happens, which basically turns off three quarters of the pancreas where the tumor is located. And then you're saying within a week, you're seeing these, these positive results. And I know, again, this is in mice, so we don't know, but 
I, I guess two questions that just came up and just in my mind, and I know anytime that, that, you know, pancreatic cancer is involved, usually diabetes is like you become diabetic really quick. So is this in fact speeding up that process of people, or in theory, again, this is all in theory of someone becoming a diabetic or these mice becoming diabetic right away? And then two, is this pain, would that also incur a, a severe case of pancreatitis or none of that kind of occurs because that's already been kind of thought about, I guess? Right. So what's really interesting here is that um, if going back to Fred Banting and the work that was done in the 1920s, it the duct ligation is such a unique physiology where the duct is going strictly into the exocrine tissue mm -hmm. and not into the endocrine tissue that it's an uh, insulin preserving intervention. Mm -hmm. And so generally what is found is that closure of the duct allows for maintenance of baseline insulin secretion. And that was also where in the original isolation of insulin, the strategy that Banting used was to focus on the duct itself. So then, and then it, it, you don't become diabetic then? Correct. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's a very unique and interesting physiologic discrepancy between the two parts of the pancreas. And that was what uh, Banting leveraged to be able to isolate insulin, um, was to be able to destroy the exocrine tissue with the duct ligation, and then to be able to harvest the endocrine tissue and create essentially um, an emulsification mm -hmm. that they were then able to feed back to um, the animals to allow for maintenance of their glucose levels. Wow. So... Again, this is all in mice, so we're we're still very early on in in, in the process. Um, and I know you mentioned the next step would be to take it to that pig model, and then eventually, you know, hopefully uh, further beyond that. One question that I have, just in this, this was written down here. I know you mentioned you lost your grandfather to pancreatic cancer, but you spent a lot of time in health disparities. Um, in, in various uh, parts of the country, how did you get from health disparities to duct ligation? Like, what was the what was the the signal or the the, uh, the process there to get you there? Because health disparities, yeah, we know that you know there's lots of parts in the country, and there's certain diseases that there's there's large health disparities, especially. I mean, we can you know pancreatic cancer for one, since we're talking about it. You know, my, uh, you know. Minority populations, we see in this space that there's a there's a large disparity um, in terms of access to care and access to clinical trials. Um, but for your situation, how did you get from health disparities focusing there and then into duck ligation? I'm kind of interested how you found that. Yeah, definitely. Ultimately, it came down to my family connection. And so with my grandfather having had pancreatic cancer and as a physician, and it was an issue that very much res uh, resonated with me. And I felt that considering the outcomes that 
one sees in pancreatic cancer compared to other tumors that there was opportunity to identify potential alternate al- alternative options or looking at further strategies in terms of therapeutics. So I think that was a very significant factor where I wanted to learn more and understand uh, what are some novel ways to think about uh, treatment approaches. And for my background in health disparities, a, a major part to it was related to cancer. So the work that I did with Dr. Sen, we actually applied a novel statistic called the mortality to incidence ratio and applied it to health systems and countries. And so work that was published was looking at colorectal cancer disparities across country, across countries to show that there was differences in healthcare treatment prevention for colorectal cancer, that this simple statistics, uh, the mortality to incidence ratio could help identify. And so I think for the personal effect of having family member who unfortunately passed away from pancreatic cancer and the tragedy that we felt as a family related to it, alongside of the macro perspective of the work I did in cancer disparities came together. And it was further catalyzed by my admiration for the work of Fred Banting. (laughs) And so I loved the inspiration, the idea of a physician who came up with an idea and then took it to the next stage. And then in understanding that duct ligation was the key source for the discovery of insulin, it made me very, very intrigued to understand how could this be applied in other settings or in a more modern context, such as a endoscopic catheter-based approach. That's fascinating. And, and thanks for sharing that. So talk about, you just mentioned it. So from a procedural standpoint, this is all pretty uh, minimally invasive. Currently we're doing surgical. So for the mice studies, it is surgical. Um, So it's an open process where there's a uh, suture-based ligation of the duct to enable full closure. And in the pig studies at the University of Nebraska, we are uh, planning to submit a grant for a surgical-based closure in both a normal wild-type pig and then the onco pig. Mm -hmm. While at the University of Illinois, we are planning on endoscopic catheter-based studies. And the pig-based model would be ideal for catheter-based studies. And so ultimately, our hope is to apply uh, the uh, catheter-based approach because that would really be a unique way to potentially treat pancreatic cancer uh, in terms of if this would be something that a gastroenterologist could do mm-hmm. at an early stage tumor or beyond as an adjuvant treatment using uh, an endoscope. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I, I would imagine, I mean, an EUS, you know, um, or, you know, the MRCP there, that that's a pretty common both of those are, are pretty common procedures. So if there's a way to, to build in this, I mean, I, I know we're, we're going ahead of ourselves here, but just to, to hypothesize, I guess, and, and to think positively here that potentially, you know, you have something on the front lines and that, and that's somewhat of a struggle, Vasu, I think, 
you know, for us as a, at least for us here as a, as a foundation, right. And a struggle in the sense that, you know, so many times, you know, we, we've talked about this on podcasts and we talk about a lot internally, you know, how quickly does a patient get diagnosed, right? And, and typically, and what I mean by that is how quickly do they get to that oncologist? And, and really the oncologist, the person who is prescribing, you know, the treatment protocol, but, you know, they, they see their GP probably initially, or, you know, if they're going into the ER, they're, they're seeing that ER attending, and then they're going to see a specialist. And that specialist is probably a GI specialist. And then once the GI specialist determines that it is, you know, cancerous, then they go to an oncologist, you know? So that's three steps removed before they even get any type of treatment, right? Exactly. But if here in this ideal world and in this process, if there's a if there's a procedure that potentially has the ability to alter outcomes in a very positive way, can be done early on in that second stage or potentially even that first stage, because they may go straight to a, a GI specialist, right? If they're having some sort of GI problem. This could be a complete game changer. And this is something that we talk about, you know, again, often here is, you know, just in that journey of people that get diagnosed, you know, how do we get to people right when they, when they become, you know, evidence of disease versus someone, you know, getting someone at stage one or, or you know, even in a, in a high risk scenario where, you know, they're at a higher risk and maybe there's something cooking there, but it hasn't popped yet. Um, but you know, we get to them early on versus getting them at stage four and it's metastatic disease and, and, you know, the options are, are really limited. And on that note, I would assume, and well, I shouldn't assume, right? Cause people shouldn't make assumptions here, but so are you using these mice models in early stage pancreatic cancer, or are you using it across the board in, in a situation where you may have metastasized cancer into other parts of uh, of the, the the mice? Currently, the process is it's an implantation of mm -hmm. the tumor to the mouse pancreas, and then a gestation period for usually within the duration of weeks, and so. In terms of a correlation, we're not seeing mets that are in the animals at the time of necropsy. Mm -hmm. uh, so generally, it's more isolated tumor. Uh, and I would say probably a rough gauge would be stage one, two, because we're within duration of just weeks from original tumor implantation. So, but in theory, though, if we you know, hypothesize again, if people are in screening and surveillance and we get people early on in those stage one and two tumors where that we haven't seen METs or we haven't seen advancement of the disease beyond the primary tumor, then this could be a complete game changer because then we can isolate and get rid of the tumors uh, very quickly in a procedure that wouldn't involve you know, a, and I'm just using what's available now, right? Like a Whipple. Mm -hmm. I guess the alternative mm -hmm. at that point would be those people potentially could be candidates for that surgery. So then it's, do you weigh the risk of a Whipple? Which, you know, there, there's risk involved in any procedure, just like there is with a, a EUS or an ERCP, but 
you know, there's there's a bigger surgical risk with a Whipple than there is with an EUS or ERCP. So I, I, I we're again playing devil's advocate here, and hypothesizing, you know, so what's the risk reward in, in both of those types of procedures long term? Yes, exactly. And I think our definitely our hope is that the data and the results in the animal models will point to that. Um, of course, we are we'd be very focused on what the actual studies are showing, um, but we're ultimately hopeful and positive that it could ideally go in that direction where the opportunity from the past medical literature in this area has shown that it's a very powerful and dramatic effect in animal models of how the pancreas responds to this intervention. But then the work of matting in the 60s and 70s, which was published in top surgical journals at the time, showed that in humans, it was actually potential treatment for pancreatitis itself, uh, where if the results aligned, it would be very compelling to see based off of the staging of the tumor, could this be a viable primary treatment where one could get a significant microenvironment change based off the fibrotic response of the closure and the almost devastating effect it has on the exocrine tissue within a very short amount of time? Or alternatively, could our animal studies demonstrate that in combination with some type of chemotherapeutic agent, could this act in concert as an adjuvant therapy for later stage tumors? where the minimally invasive platform could be extremely compelling in terms of reduced complications, morbidity versus an open surgical uh, intervention such as Whipple. And so I think those are where there's a lot of um, appeal in terms of what this could present. And actually just one additional note from your previous question, regarding pancreatitis. It's very interesting as an aside where I've spoken with multiple gastroenterologists and that is one uh, significant concern about manipulation of the pancreatic duct is the potential effect of inducing a pancreatitis. And that's definitely been demonstrated in, uh, in real practice in terms of the duct. But what's compelling as well, and I think there's opportunity to further evaluate is, again, the matting work was using duct ligation for the treatment of chronic pancreatitis and acute relapsing pancreatitis itself. So there is something of a paradox, at least as it relates to this previous surgical literature in duct ligation regarding pancreatitis, where I think there is much opportunity to further elucidate that as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that brings up a good point, you know, the pancreatitis, because naturally, like any time you go in and start messing around with the pancreas, because it's such a fragile organ, you know, there, there's the risk of inflammation and anything else that you do there. But just like in anything else, as we talked about the Whipple, you know, there's risk and reward, right? With all these types mm -hmm. of procedures and, and eventually mm -hmm. the data will present itself, right? As they say. Exactly. So on that note, I know you talked about the opportunities here. 
what do you think in, in your opinion, Vasu, here with the experience you have, the things you're doing, what what are like the biggest challenges you guys face? And then, and you know, I'll just jump in here real quick. I know funding's one of them. <laughs> uh, I giggle here because you know, hey, if we if we had a, a blank checkbook, like we, you know, from a foundational standpoint, we would love to invest and you know, and, and, and you know, do as much as possible. And you know, all kidding aside, I decided to start Project Purple because of funding. Right? We we know like the reality is is this is one of the it is the least funded major cancer in the United States. And 85% of the funding comes from the government, the NIH. So yeah. that doesn't say a lot about the space. You know, I mean, we're we're lucky if the space as a whole, you know, brings in 200 million a year into research and, you know, about 150 is done by the federal government. So, you know, you compare that to other diseases like breast cancer, that's a billion dollar industry, you know, in terms of research opportunities. So that's a lot of zeros <laughs> compared to, you know, 200 million. And also knowing the fact that as if you know, the NIH, the NIH does, you know, benchwork science, it's gotta be, you know, it's not really any, anything outside the box. So it's, it's very, I think, conservative in their approach, which is great. We need those projects done and in, in those kinds of studies. I, I think there's more money that is coming to the table, but it doesn't happen overnight. So if we take the challenge of the financial piece out of it, because we know that's there, what other challenges do you see with the work you're doing? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, I see a couple of things. One is as a background is clinically in terms of the team that we've had work either collaborating with or um, have given input or feedback, the, it's been very positive. So be it the team at Cedar sinai um, or at the University of Illinois, Lauren Shook and Kyle Schott-Snyder, faculty at the University of Illinois, Dr. Carlson um, at the University of Nebraska, but also uh, Hanning Rudd Anderson. He is a Danish cardiologist who invented transaortic valve replacement. And so his work in the late 80s, where he demonstrated this procedure in pig um, was very uh, paradigm shifting in its own respect in the cardiovascular space. And Dr. Anderson also has found this work, which I've discussed with him, very compelling as a novel kind of approach to investigate. What I would say is the challenges I see with the ultimate goal of a catheter-based approach for duct ligation is one, to demonstrate safety and tolerability in pig. So taking the example of Dr. Anderson with TAVR, that was the key animal model he used to then proceed forward. And so the pig-based studies and demonstrating safety tolerability over an extended time frame will be very important. Further would be to demonstrate that an effect in terms of staging contingent, so be it stage one to metastatic, what is or is not the effect of duct ligation and to see where it works and where it does not and being very clear about the constraints of the technology itself or the therapeutic approach. Further, I think in these studies would be to clearly delineate the complications, be it uh, could there be the risk of duct perforation? Could there be the risk of 
pancreatitis, as we were discussing. But to further identify what the exact rates of that are. So as we we're saying, with any type of procedure, there's a risk-benefit ratio. And unfortunately, because this has been so understudied that we don't have a clear idea of what is the data we're looking at and what is the actual statistics at a more macro level to give some bounds to complication rates for this procedure. From there, I see the next steps of saying if there are favorable effects of the study in pig moving towards a catheter-based approach in terms of uh, assessing a novel catheter for duct ligation specifically, and then navigating the FDA process uh, in accordance with regulatory requirements. So I see a multiple different steps where ultimately it's to clearly de delineate the boundaries of where this has effect, where it does not have an effect, what are the complications, but also what are the rates and then from there, how do we move forward with that knowledge to navigate a complex regulatory environment for a novel catheter that would be specifically suited to minimize the risk of pancreatitis and these other complications, but maximize the effect of the fibrosis response that we uh, are seeking in the exocrine pancreas. I think, you know, you, you mentioned a lot there. And, you know, as I go back to with the Whipple, and I look at all this and, you know, we get a lot, and where I'm going with this, Basu, is we get patients that call in all the time, what should I do? What's this, you know, new procedure or this drug? And I think it's all, it all comes down to, I try to use a very pragmatic approach of risk and reward. You know, there, there's a certain amount of risk with all these treatments, uh, but you know the reward on the backside, and, and you know, I, and not to bring up politics and what's happening right now in our in our world, not just in our country, you know. But there's risk and there's reward in everything that we do, and you know, I, I guess from a from a patient standpoint here with pancreatic cancer, you know that that question was a loaded question, you know, challenges because you, you're facing you know uh, some challenges there, and and the opportunity is is unlimited potentially here in this case. But if we were to bring patients in, you know, that are facing pancreatic cancer, you know, maybe the, the audience listening at home that's been there can understand what I'm saying is that, you know, I, I, you know, with all those, those challenges and roadblocks and potentially the risks of pancreatitis or proliferation or, you know, depending on staging, potentially even, you know, but if, if there's even, I think 1% potential opportunity to, you know, mitigate the cancer, um, you know, live another year or two, or potentially be in a situation where, you know, this is the, the bridge to the game changing therapeutic that comes out in four years, I think the majority of the people would do it. You know, so I, I I thank you for your honesty, and I know it's kind of put you on the spot there. And like I said, it was kind of a loaded question there. Um, naturally, there's there's tons of challenges in, in anything that we do with this disease. Um, the opportunities are also exponentially, you know, large in terms of where it could go. 
But I, I think for the, the patients and the patient families, you know, this, this disease, I, I mean, maybe it's the fact that there haven't been any major enhancements and advancements in this disease from a therapeutic standpoint and from a procedure standpoint, you know, in the last 20 to 30 years that really have made a difference. And, I, and you know, yeah, survivability has gone up, but, you know, incidences have gone up. You know, genetic testing, I think, has has gotten better and, and we have, you know, now a, um, a protocol, you know, with regards to people who um, have certain genetic mutations that seem to do very well with that, not for everyone, but for the most part. And that's been, I think, a little bit of a game changer. Um, but, you know, we've got to do better. We've got to think, I, I think, you know, uh, hopefully our push here at Project Purple is to get people to think outside the box. And hopefully we give the opportunity to researchers like yourself, um, you know, to, to use those outside the box ideas and, and things that we haven't tried yet because what we've been doing really hasn't worked. Um, so I commend you uh, on, you know, coming up with this idea uh, for working hard on it, um, working with others across the country and collaborating and trying to, to see if this thing works. And, and I truly do hope that this thing does work uh, because we know the space needs something. Um, and this could be, like I said, the game changer or the bridge, you know, for a lot of patients and a lot of families, given the risks that are involved, um, but can get them to that next step in this journey with pancreatic cancer that potentially, you know, four years, or maybe it is the game changer that, you know, gets rid of the cancer or keeps the cancer at bay uh, for a long, long time so that they can be with their loved ones for a lot longer than they would have had um, if this wasn't there. Yeah. So, you know, I first want to just say thank you, um, you know, for the opportunity to discuss the work we're doing, you know, we're quite, um, positive and optimistic, of course, grounded and taking very careful steps each, uh, step of the way, but the work that project purple is doing to be such a strong advocate, it's so important because that's very much my thought as well, where the funding landscape is, um, quite challenging and it is there's such need for um, growing the intervention base that is available and one corollary that really does come to mind is if we look at the cardiovascular medical device space so charles Doty out of oregon in the 1950s and 60s was doing the first iliac-based treatments uh, using medical device. And his work inspired uh, a German physician, Andreas Grunsfeld, to come up with the idea of balloon angioplasty, which was a game changer for the coronary vessels. But then what's interesting is that Grunsfeld in 1978 presented a lecture about the challenges of balloon angioplasty. And in attendance, was Julio Palmaz, who was then inspired to come up with the cardiac stent from that lecture of Grunsfeld. Fast forward another 10 years, we're in around 1988. Palmaz was presenting in Scottsdale, Arizona. In attendance was Henning Rudd Anderson, who on hearing about the cardiac stent said, what if I made the catheter 30 times bigger, and I put a valve in the catheter, could I actually do an aortic valve replacement without having to do surgery? 
in a minimally invasive way. And then Henning um, from there, of course, was the key discoverer of transaortic valve replacement, which completely transformed the industry. But I bring that example up in that we see a series of uh, inspirations uh, that in one space of medicine has led to tremendous patient outcomes and saved so many people's lives. And my hope is that in some vein, we can have this line with the pancreas and pancreatic cancer. And I think there's ample opportunity. Duct ligation is one area that I think does show uh, promise and you know, the inspiration of Fred Banting um, still rings true to this day. But I really do hope that we can have a series of discoveries related to mechanical treatments of the pancreas um, that could in some vein mirror um, the level of excitement and discovery that happened with endovascular care over the last 50 years. I hope so. I hope so. I got two things left here for you. Uh, one's easy, uh, but again, a loaded question here. My last question here for you, but we ask everyone, given your experience, and I know you said you, you lost your grandfather to pancreatic cancer and all the great things you're doing in the pancreatic cancer space, how would you define the term pancreatic cancer? Wow. I'd say, um, I'd say multiple parts as a physician, I would say it's a very complex tumor that we are working very hard to understand how to treat and how to catch earlier as a family member. I say it's of someone who passed away very close to me who from pancreatic cancer, it's a devastating, uh, it's a devastating disease that is in our family's case was so aggressive, um, took, uh, my grandfather's life away so quickly and the sadness and the tragedy of it resounds to this day. And so it kind of brings together different parts of my personality between as you know, a grandson, but then also as a doctor, sort of the objective aspects of looking at what the data says and what are the, the standards of care versus as a family member, really wanting to find answers as soon as possible and having the frustration, the sadness of the devastation of this disease. So I see it in multiple layers. Powerful stuff. There's no right or wrong. Um, it's your definition of pancreatic cancer. Our last piece here, for someone listening at home, um, it could be another foundation. Um, it could be a family going through this and potentially they wanna learn more about the great things you are doing and the work you're doing. Where's the best place for maybe them to learn more or to connect with you? Yes, definitely. Um, you can feel free to reach out to me by email. Uh, it's my last name, S-U-N-K-A-R-A dot Basu, V-A-S-U at gmail.com. Awesome. Well, Vasu, thank you for coming on to the Project Purple podcast 
and for sharing all the great things you're doing in the pancreatic cancer space. Thank you for all you're doing for the families that are going to be impacted by this disease today, tomorrow, in years to come. Um, as I said, uh, you know, we need more of these novel ideas uh, because what we've been doing for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years even hasn't really changed. You know, we, we, we've got to start to think outside the box and we've got to start to take a look at some things that, um, you know, I, I think this disease, as I said, is so complex, but I do feel maybe the answer to maybe some of these groundbreaking things that really potentially could make a, a big difference are, are right in front of us. And, and, you know, maybe sometimes we just got to think outside the box, like a, a concept of duck ligation, which like you said, has been around for a while. And, and uh, Dr. Banting really kind of, you know, started that years and years ago in Toronto. And, you know, this is a concept that potentially could be a game changer here in the pancreatic cancer space. So thank you for all you do. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And thank you for such tremendous work as an advocate and a support um, that you and Project Purple are doing for our country and patients and families around our country and the world. Thank you. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. If you like what you hear today, feel free to share this episode and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening. Be safe. And that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. Mm-hmm.